How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 164. Oh, we're already off to a great start with our uh, second uh, ever remote recording. <laughs> it's crazy, uh, eh? Yeah. So, last week, we, ha- we had plenty of discussions, Zeke, in the last couple of weeks about, oh, uh, you know... Um, we're getting cases racking up in WA again. The borders officially open now, which which is you know fantastic news, but obviously means there's going to be a lot of disruption. So eat week week to week, we're having these discussions, Zeke. Like, ah, oh, should we try and focus on streaming now? Ah, oh, we could probably get one more in. We can get one more theatrical release in. Last week we said we'll do one yeah. more. We'll do the Batman. There's a very important release for 2022. We'll get it in, and a bang. Hello, COVID. <laughs> Yep, and here we are now, here doing are. our recording, uh, up and about, uh, online. So, yeah, not too bad, not, not too, bad. too bad. We can we can cope in the twenty first century with this sort of uh, unfortunate turn of events. No, that's exactly it. And um, you know, we're going to keep the show going. Doesn't matter what happens. Um, this will be our first recording remotely since Gallipoli. So that was. I mean, a lot of people went through a lot of things during Gallipoli, um, including us. We had to record our podcast online, but <laughs> big difference. <laughs> oh goodness, yeah, never ends. No, so um, I will put my hand up and say, uh, yes, my house is currently riddled with COVID. So uh, that's that is the main <laughs> reason we're recording remotely right now. <laughs> yep. So we'll I've got we'll an appropriate amount of distance from you right now. I'm in a safe space. Yeah, not not so that far away. Not that far away to be fair. Far far enough. Far Probably enough. Appropriately social distance. More than one point five meters. <laughs> That's but for sure. uh, more than one point five miles, maybe. Mm. Maybe we're we're close. <laughs> we're real close. Um. All right. Well, let's well, jump. We can jump it. Sorry. Oh, see, we're already gonna. Anyway, see, this is this is the problem. <laughs> we're already having issues. I love it. <laughs> Uh well I'll 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 bring us in uh, Zeke, I just mentioned we're watching the Batman this week we did we did manage it we've done it so we're going to talk about it do you have any fun facts yep. for me about the Batman I do I do and I found this one kind of cute it was uh so obviously it centers around Zoe Kravitz and this is not actually her first rendition of playing the Catwoman oh. In fact, she actually voiced the character of Catwoman in the 2017 Lego Batman movie. Ah, oh, that's great. <laughs> well, I find that one quite a fun little fact. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's funny you we'll mentioned that. We'll be talking that. about her performance. Of course, yeah, we'll be talking about mm. it soon. But what what's funny about that as well is she's actually recently come out and talked about having auditioned for not, not let's clarify, this not the Catwoman, but the sort of the girl that Catwoman lives with uh, in the Dark Knight Rises, and she was saying that she was actually mm. um, rejected an audition because of her skin color. So uh, that is interesting. That is something she's been talking about recently. But of course, she is the Catwoman in this new film. And my fun fact, and mm. it's a very simple one. There's plenty of little things on the IMDb about their direct influences. Matt Reeves, like, oh, I was listening to Nevada while writing the script, so we put some Nevada music in it, and I was thinking of. You know, this actor who plays this role and a lot of direct things like that. But the one that caught my attention was the original working title was for this film was called Vengeance, which I found particularly funny because I said it 
multiple times while watching the film, why isn't this just called Vengeance? <laughs> and uh, I do know the answer to that, and I'll I'll give my reason why I'm glad they changed it to The Batman later in the show. Yeah, no dramas. Well, before we move into the second half of the show, we normally go through and ask the question, would this film exist on your 1,100 films to watch before you uh, before you die? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jake, would this film make that list? Um, I will say yes with an, a but. No, not but. I'll say yes with an if. Mm-hmm. I'll say yes, assuming that you also have 2019's Joker on that list. I think these two films are actually tied uh, thematically in a lot of ways, which would be interesting to discuss. Okay. But that that's how I'm going to answer that question. Okay. Um, I personally believe this film would probably go on my list mm. um, as uh, I actually feel like this is more akin to something like Logan in the sense that it's differentiating from a standardized formula. Um, you could argue Joker fits in that same category of the other two mentioned, two mentioned, but um, yeah, no, I'm I'm a massive fan of this film. Mm. Um, but I will dive into exactly why later in the show. Before we get there, though, Jake, mm. what have yes. you caught in the last week? Um, so I haven't caught much, which I know is ironic since I've you know been in isolation since last. Thursday? It's been a few days. I'm starting to lose track of all time and space in existence, but um, I did manage to catch one. I actually watched it last night. I watched Nosferatu for the first time ever. Now, the reason I did this is because movie came out in March of 1922, so it is officially 100 years old, Nosferatu, which is absolutely bonkers. Um, the only relation I had to this film was the, the very last seven minutes of the film. And I didn't realize it was the ending until obviously I watched it last night, uh, that I studied in high school. We actually did that last seven minutes and it was part of our ATAR curriculum. Actually, Zeke, did, you did media in high school, did you? Did you do ATAR? I do believe we both did ATAR media at the same oh, time. there you go. So you would have, you probably would have done the scene as well then of Nosferatu. You are correct. Yeah. Well, we had the option to do this scene. Right, we had choices. It was sort of like, yeah. it was a collection. Yeah. I think I opted for the can't even remember it now, but I think it was a Van Gogh-related one. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, so I, I don't remember if I actually... I just remember, like, us watching it in preparation for, like, it might come up in the exam. I don't remember if I actually did end up writing about it. I'm very curious what I did write about it, because I think that was obviously several years ago. I've done a lot more screen theory and research and, and academic research I probably would have a lot more to say about that seven-minute chunk now than I did back then, but mm-hmm. um, having now seen the film totally, and this would be my first ever silent film, because even modern times, Charlie Chaplin, there's a little bit of like dialogue voice. They sneak it in there every now and then. This is the first full, like an 80-minute, depends on the version you're watching, of course. Sometimes it's sped up or slowed down, but the version I watched was about 80 minutes long. Complete, Completely just a silent film, and the soundtrack... With the very, very rare exception of um, clocks ticking. Sometimes the character wakes mm. up in the morning because the clock's hit. With the very rare exception of that, the entire film is basically organ music. And it's absolutely phenomenal. I actually wrote it down real quick. So that in the credits, and again, this might be something they did later on. I think the credit here is from 1991. 
uh, Dolby Digital Score composed and performed by Silent Orchestra, with the organ score compiled and performed by Timothy Howard. And his IMDb actually reads this as a credit from 1991. So mm. that's interesting in and itself in terms of how authentic the version is that I'm watching. There actually is like a HD version on YouTube that I avoided because mm. I could I could tell from the text, the little title cards, I was like, this is too modern. I would rather watch the 360p mm. version that looks a bit more accurate to the time it was it was done. And I loved all the comments talking about some people said their great-grandmothers saw this film like, you know, the month it came out in theatres and how everyone would read all the text out loud because a lot of people were illiterate back then. So it would sort of help each other out for that film-going experience. So I thought that was really... just That was just a great story. But the film itself, I thought, was actually immaculate. I thought it was... For a film with absolutely no dialogue, no, it's completely reliant on these exaggerated theatrical performances from the actors, but it works, you know, they're very clearly hitting those beats of, oh, my character is shocked now, my character is scared now. They're making those beats very clear, mm. the story's very easy to follow. Um, I thought it was very clever in a lot of ways, the way they sort of uh, interluded, you know, you have the Count sneaking onto this boat, and then the rats that sort of follow him, that leads into the crew thinking they're all getting killed off by a plague, which ends up scaring off the yeah. small town that it arrives. Like, a lot of things like that, I'm like, this is actually really clever and, and quite relevant, um, not just in terms of the plague that we've had in the 2020s, but the plague that would have happened uh, in the earlier 19th or the 1900s, not the 19th yeah. century. That's a little off. Um, but I just thought there were a lot of clever elements like that, the lighting and the, the, the way they cast shadows. I mean, everyone knows about like the famous... Nosferatu's shadow as he's walking up the stairs. That's like one of the most iconic shots of all time. Like just great, great use of shadows and lighting and, and this creating this imposing, freaky creature. I like there's a point when he like he's like claw like hands are reaching out. I was like, ah, oh, this was like they homaged it in Nightmare on Elm Street when Freddy's going through the wall above Nancy's bed. Like just seeing all of the all of those odes, but in reverse, because this is officially the oldest film I've ever seen. The previous one being Frankenstein. So yeah, I, well, you I go. loved it. And yeah. clocking in at a lazy hundred. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just the cheeky one hundred. But um, no, I thought I thought the film was absolutely outstanding, and I love the way um a lot of the scenes would sort of. Um, do this vintage close, vintage open, and I'm like, I reckon that's them literally just playing with the aperture and having no other way to edit in and out of scenes. I reckon they're physically just closing the lens in camera, and that's how they're doing their scene transitions. So, a lot of just fascinating takeaways. And one, before I move on, one thing: the there are very few visual effect shots in there, but I was shocked at the restraint of the visual effect shots. As in, mm-hmm. there's one where. Um, you know, Nosferatu setting up like a pile of coffins onto the back of this truck and he climbs up and like, you know, lays rest, the classic imagery, he's got his hands over his chest and then the top of the coffin actually floats up and closes in on him and then the truck drives away. And yeah, it's a cheesy effect, but I was shocked at the restraint that it just all happens as part of this big, like long take one where the character's looking through the window and they're seeing this from a distance. I was like, I like they're not like mm. highlighting. Like, look at this amazing effect. It's like just part of this shot that already has a lot going on with the mise en scene. So yeah, it's, it's softly spoken. Yeah, so just super confident filmmaking. Um, absolutely fantastic film. Definitely watch it if you got a chance. It's a uh, hundred years old and uh, holds up very well. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so Zeke, what have you watched in this past week? I've had a pretty quiet week too. Um, 
it was quite the quite the journey to even watch the film of the week because we were <laughs> a bit of a roller coaster of would we do it wouldn't we do it um yeah and exactly so yeah. i've just pretty much quite and obviously i've been very busy elsewhere so i've pretty much just gotten to the end of season one of succession has pretty much been my, which i've enjoyed quite uh, immensely i'm very excited for what season two and three have to offer but um quite an interesting first season um you really don't like a lot of the characters i think you only really get behind kendall <laughs> in the last second to last episode um, is when you really start to kind of back him. And even I actually think it, it's almost an interchangeable protagonist-antagonist dynamic between Kendall and Logan especially, mm. um, uh, that you don't really know who's actually uh, necessarily the person we should be rooting for um, because it ends up becoming this sort of power dynamic between the two, but it, it does make me very excited. Um, and yes, that uh, that vote of no confidence scene was anxiety-inducing. <laughs> yeah, for so, me, that that scene is just absolute. That was when I was like, "Wow, okay, this shows this shows got me and its hooks now." Um, especially because I'm into all of that sort of financial speak, and especially how all of these business moves have so many um, interpersonal uh, sort of effects or the domino effect on the actual family because it is a is a family business. That's what it is. Uh, yeah. Even the people who I aren't... The stagnant ep- sorry. Oh, sorry, Jake. I think the Stagnite episode really uh, outlined to me... Um, I mean, I know it was played for a more comedic episode too, um, you know, but it, I think it explores really the dynamic of everyone kind of under Logan, interacting mm. with, in positions of power and sort of explores their characters more. But it is a very, very entertaining show. If you're if you can kind of slug it through, I think the first four episodes, I think are quite slow, um, and if it can be tough when there's no character that's inherently compelling or, or even nice, so you're sort of like, ah, oh, what am I really getting behind this? I mean, like if you think of shows that have had really long run times in the last ten, fifteen years, it's like, you know, if you take the Breaking Bad pilot, it's like, yeah, you you don't really like. You, you don't dislike Walt in that first season. Not in the sense that he hasn't become like the monster that he's capable of being, or at least hasn't revealed it at that point. Um, and I think that season, that, that's why that show's so compelling, because it's more just them trying to get through day-to-day sure, sort of life. Yeah. Whereas, you know, these characters are at first completely alien to us because they're so wealthy and... Um, we can't really relate to that level, that pleth, like that monolithic level of wealth. Um, but then what we, you know, it really burns down to intergenerational um, domestic abuse, really, mm, whether yes. that's not necessarily, whether that's on a physical level or a verbal level. And that's sort of when it becomes more related, like when they do the uh, the family therapy episode in, in Mexico. <laughs> um, no, I mean, there definitely is dark humour in the show, for sure. Um, and self-awareness of how absurd, but mainly how socially alien these people are to the rest of the world. Mm. Um, whether that's people actually on the outside alienating them because of their name or the fact that, that because they've been so wealthy, they're unable to relate to people from lower socioeconomic classes, yet they're dictating the welfare of socio lower socioeconomic classes. 
Yeah. Well, so, that that that's last scene in the very first episode where you see, you know, it's playing on the TV. Like the, I think the average home is like one point two million, and the family that in there are the family that jokingly got offered a million dollars to to basically hit a home run in a baseball game. Like, it's you're right. It's there's so much ignorance from you know these richer characters and not realizing how much effect they do have on that world. But you're right. I think what we're relating to is the sort of the intergenerational trauma and the fact that these it's just a bunch of kids trying to impress their dad and that's obviously a mm. lot more relatable than just they have so many billions of dollars that money is no issue and the drama really picks up when money is not able to solve those issues like you know the vote of no confidence you have Kendall who desperately needs to get to a place in time and because of things out of his control that he cannot just throw money at to solve we start seeing mm. the more primal aspects of these characters. And I think I think seasons two and three really dwell deeper into that. Although I will say, mm-hmm. I still think I think season one still might be my favorite. And I don't want to spoil like what happens in the end of season one for people who haven't seen it. But I think what happens to Kendall's arc and the fact that he gets... The fact that it essentially happens twice, I think it's just such a genius writing. And I think that first season still speaks to me the most. But I'm glad you're getting through it. I'm glad you're liking it. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Free, free two month subscription to binge. So trying to capitalize on it as much as possible. <laughs> Very good. Yep. Yeah, that's all I've got. So for the uh, first part of the show. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I I don't really have any career updates. I've just been hanging out at home. <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah. it is time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching this week on the show, Zeke? We're watching the Batman. <laughs> The Riddler is asking for you. The killer left this for the Batman. Why is he writing to you? You came. I've been trying to reach you. Riddler's latest. It's all about the Waynes. If we don't stand up, no one will. You got a lot of cats. Never think about strays. The bat and the cat. Nice ring. New friend of yours? I'm not so sure. I'm just here to unmask the truth about this cesspool we call a city. You're part of this too. How am I part of this? Oh, you're really not as smart as I thought you were. Bruce Wayne. All these years. Lied to me, Alfred. We all have our scars, Bruce. He's still away. He's involved in this? No, he's not involved. How do you know? He's a vigilante. Who are you under there? What are you hiding? Selena, don't throw your life away. Don't worry, honey. I got nine of them. It can be cruel, poetic, or blind. But when it's denied, it's your violence you may find. Justice. The answer's justice. In his second year of fighting crime, Batman uncovers corruption in Gotham City that connects to his own family while facing a serial killer known as the Riddler. Ooh, sounds like he's got a lot on his plate, that, that Batman character. You would definitely think so in this film. <laughs> This is, to date, the longest 
superhero film in history. Is it really? Mm-hmm. Uh, cinematic. Oh, okay. Ah, oh, because I thought I thought Avengers Endgame was five minutes longer. According to IMDb, it is the longest beating out Avengers Endgame and Zack Snyder's Justice League. Oh no, it's third longest. No, because I read, that's... I misread. Zeke can't even. Ah, read. there you go. You I was gonna there say because like, Justice League's even longer. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's yeah. the the original, the thematic cut, not the Snyder cut. Oh, it's definitely longer than the theatrical cut. But, um, yeah, Avengers Endgame only has one cut as well. But, to your point, Zeke, it is still a very long movie. <laughs> it's a three-hour movie. It is indeed. Um, before we jump into the intricacies of this film, Jake, yes. I obviously want to touch on a couple of things. This is obviously from Matt Reeves, who is most well-known for his sort of success of revamping the Planet of the Apes trilogy. Yep. Um, Masterpiece films. And Excellent films. Yes, particularly he did, obviously, the second and the third film, in which yep. most people will hallmark definitely the second being the best of the three. Sure. Um, I mean, the second's just phenomenal. I'll pose to you, Jake. Um, do you think this film outdoes those two films as sort of these cinematic universe epics? Hmm. It's a good question, because especially within the realm of Matt Reeves, he hasn't actually done a whole lot of films. I've seen, obviously, his bigger ones like Cloverfield, those Planet of the Apes films. Mm-hmm. Obviously, now Batman. I think he's a great choice for this film. Um, I think I love those Apes films so much. I think Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is probably one of the greatest films ever made. I generally believe that. And despite my excitement for Matt Reeves, for the entire cast, I mean, like... Obviously, Robert Patterson. We were, from day one, we were both like, "Yep, that sounds like a great choice." We're into that. Um, you know, I love Paul Dano, I love Andy Serkis, Jeffrey Wright, uh, John Turturro. I thought was excellent in this film. I was like, "Oh my god, that's John Turturro!" <laughs> mm. So I had every reason to be super, super excited for this film. Yet I went in with reservations. I went in being like, "I actually don't know." The trailers, mm. they're good trailers, but I, I wasn't quite. I kind of went in being like, I honestly don't know how to feel. That being said, I think it's very good. I think it's even great. I don't know if I would call it a masterpiece, which, to be fair, a lot of people are calling it that at the moment. This film is doing insanely well, critically. Uh, And amongst our friends, the majority of our friends are like, this is like a perfect film. Um, Yes, I would love to sit down with friend of the show, Stephen Clark and ask him to explain himself. (laughs) I haven't read his review, and I will read it. Um, yep, yep. In due course, but obviously I'm looking at the spread, and most people are sitting in that four, four and a half range, including myself. With the only yes. two people sitting out of that range are you and Stephen. So, yeah. Um, I don't think this is going to be a super hypercritical, a hypercritique. I don't think. I think obviously the the rating is just the rating, but um, course, yeah. I have a couple of really. I came out of this feeling really interesting um, before I jump into the film though I have to give a shout out I went and saw this with Morgan and Oliver uh, who Mm. are both mutual friends of us Um, and Oliver is now the ultimate ultimate cinema OG as he told a bunch of teenagers he got up in the middle of the cinema went over to the corner and told them to shut the heck up Um, (laughs) 
and like just quietly he did it like very like adultish right but it was like yep. middle of the movie and they were like these kids jake they're sitting in the back right corner we went saw this at hoyt's obviously so it's a bigger cinema and sure. like they would be leaving to go to the bathroom and like stomping down the stairs deliberately not like like they would like trying to be funny boom, by like boom, stomping boom, down boom, the stairs. yeah and they're just talking and they were like on their phones and then eventually they ended up being not not only Oliver, but the guy next to us, and then another person to the point where a Hoyt's um, person actually removed them from the cinema. Oh my God, that's excellent. So <laughs> that's the first time I've ever seen that happen. But isn't it just getting to this point? This is now back-to-back weeks. I've had two weeks for cinema you, yeah. complaints to around. It's just going to get to a point where you're going to have to have cinema rushes. Like, you're just going to have mm. to. You're going to have to have people cycling in every 10, 15 minutes. Like, well, they, they used to do that. I, I feel like I haven't actually mm-hmm. seen that happen anymore. Like, even even Spider-Man, mm-hmm. I didn't really see anyone walk in and out of that. Crazy, eh? Yeah. But That's interesting. Anyway, no, big shout out to Ollie. <laughs> um, good performance. Good, good quality. Good performance. Um, <laughs> But the other thing I, I think I'd like to ask you, Jake, and I'm a massive fan of this film, um, mm. uh, would this style, and maybe this, you know, the, the counter-argument was very fair that was thrown by both Oliver and Morgan, who I, I threw this to, I was like, this film feels like almost like five or six episodes of a mini-series. Like, mm. in the sense that there are moments... Like, I don't think this film has necessarily a traditional three-act structure. Because there are almost moments where it feels like they're about to cut to the credits for the end of the episode. Um, okay. And and I, th- I the reason I say that is because we have a plethora of different ensemble cast members that actually have intricate parts to, I guess, this whole giant conspiracy, but almost get their respective moments over the course of the... Um, over the course of the film. Um, and it doesn't feel necessarily quite like, say, I think this film is fair to be in the conversation of comparing it to The Dark Knight. Um, but The Dark Knight feels like a, a film. Like, it's very... when you th- It's all about, like, necessarily getting the... Like, just getting to the Joker and, and, and stuff. But I think I walked away from this thinking this was more like a se- the first season of True Detective, to an extent. Um, mm. like I almost was like, I want to watch a mini series like this, like a HBO esque series. And it's not like the budget, like budgets are a thing, for, like a limitation for shows anymore. I mean, Disney no, Plus has put, put yeah. out all of these massive budgeted MCU films, and you feel like it's only a matter of time for DC to kind of do the mutual same thing. I'm glad that it's a film. I'm glad it's getting people in the cinema, and I'm glad it's good enough for me to be like, I don't want three hours of this. I want 10 hours of this. Mm, um, sure. So I think that that's a fair point. Um, that was my, that was the counter that Oliver especially offered. And I don't know. I thought I'd pose that, that point to you. Do you think this would work well in a serialized format, like a Chernobyl esque, maybe not even a full mm. 10, just like a five or a six. Yeah. I think, I mean, I could totally see it um, with what you're going because the story is quite, expansive and there's a lot of sort of riddles for them to figure out because i get the true detective comparison 
But to me, and, and, and this is no secret, they have been very, very, very open about it. This is straight up like a Fincher-esque, you know, crime thriller. And those films mm-hmm. also were three hours long and have very deliberate pacing and sort of these these overarching things that have to all come together at the end. And I thought um, from that standpoint where, yeah, you got all the stuff with Riddler and then figuring that out and then it all interconnects with the mob and then it all interconnects back to the Wayne family. And I guess it's getting a little spoilerish here, although the logline literally says, you know, corruption that connects with his own family. So I don't feel like that's a spoiler mm-hmm. at all. Um, that's a very well-known uh, part of, of Batman lore that some accounts include the Gotham family, uh, the Gotham family, the the Wayne family and Bruce's parents being tied into the mob one way or another. I know the Telltale Batman series does that, which that was the first time I was introduced to that storyline. But Doesn't this feel like a Telltale game almost? It has that same <laughs> level of sort of story-esque quality to it. Well, you, like, yeah, you're talking about episodic content, I think. that's what That's what you're getting at. I think it honestly has that level, and I'm really glad. What, Why I tie it back to the Logan thing is we're getting something that's not the same as what we've seen before. We're getting something that's so genre-focused, and I'm going to dive into sort of comic realism and, and the fact that this film is so grounded in reality that it's almost trying to just... The only difference between this and real life is that we don't actually have a, a, a vigilante, I think, because, you know, it comes back to the overt parallels uh, to New York, the fact that they've got physical New York landmarks and the only difference is they've replaced New York or Madison with Gotham Square Garden. Like, sure. I, I find that truly fascinating that it's so overtly trying to be like, this is pretty much just an alternative reality and not in the sense of of comic fiction. I, I think more in the sense that it's like this could real like a realist has a more realistic depiction. I mean, I, I love the fact that every almost everything he has, gadget-wise, is attainable right now for someone. Like, they've hmm. Reeves has forcefully pushed, like, has limited his tech to essentially stuff that can be accessible, uh, albeit to a, a billionaire, but that's what he is. So, yeah. you know, it's but it's not like... You know, with Nolan's, and this is not saying one's better or worse, but with Nolan, he seems to get these tech gadgets that are overwhelmingly comical in nature or just beyond the point of, of like, thought and require monologues to explain their purpose, whereas there's not a single monologue explaining one of his gadgets in this, in this whole film. And I'm, I'm mm. a big supporter of that. Okay. You see, I I didn't think it was that overt in The Dark Knight. Like, I thought it was all very grounded and a lot of the technology made sense. And I understand you saying, like, they need to explain how it works to show how it works. While this Batman, it's a a lot more uh, tangential. So it's like, okay, well, he's using the sharp end of his Batarang to cut through a thing. Like, that's a very tangential, understandable gadget that we can comprehend without a monologue to explain it. I get that. He also doesn't have infinite amounts of... of tech that that is available to him like he doesn't just pull stuff out at random it's he only has one batarang and it's actually on his chest like it's detachable from his chest like the fact that he doesn't have this cloth that can make him glide and fly it's a jumpsuit like it's a it's a Mm, just a normal typical jumpsuit and actually it goes horribly wrong for him um (laughs) i forgot about that yeah um and I, I think, like, things like that or, like, the only one that's kind of comical or at least, like, slightly fictionalised is, like, the eye camera stuff. But 
you know, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some like tangible research into that sort of level of camera camera monitoring that we have like iris cameras being developed, you know? Um, yeah. I, I, I think that's, I was a big fan of that because it allowed everything that we saw to be more focused on the fact that he's not like able to, the, the reason why the Riddler's prolific reach or is able to play these games is because he can't solve all this stuff with tech or immediate answers to the question. Um, and it relies solely on his ability to be a detective, which I'm, I'm all about. Yeah. Well, I think I think it comes back to, we talked about the iconography. You said this is essentially just New York with a little bit of a paint job, so we can call it Gotham. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, think, I mean, there's a bit of Chicago in there, but The Dark Knight is definitely more of the Chicago-turned-Gotham City uh, mm-hmm. outlook. But then you go back to Tim Burton, and it's like he went all out to create this unique sort of gothic aesthetic, German expressionism shapes for the buildings, everything. Like he made Gotham look just as weird and as bizarre mm-hmm. as the character Batman. And then, you know, with these more recent films, we're seeing it go the other way around where it's just New York or Chicago, um, but we're going to make the character of Batman look more sort of grounded and, and fit this world. Uh, but like I said, it's going back to those Zodiac um, 7-esque aesthetics where everything's really dark and neo-noir and sort of moody and um there's a lot of rain just constantly coming down and i think it's interesting they're putting the batman iconography over that so like you said it's very focused on genre it's very focused on that aesthetic as all right let's just put some batman stuff let's put the 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 um how am i forgetting it like the spotlight let's put the spotlight in there and give him the costume and um but otherwise it's a very straightforward detective story which i think I mean, I love the idea behind it. I think it's executed very well. Um, that go, again goes to the pacing of this three-hour detective story. I love that the villains, you know, Colin Farrell's um, Penguin. He's not like the big bloody. He's not like a a ball <laughs> like in a Batman Returns. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like he's an actual character, and you buy it. And Falcone is as well. And obviously, Andy Serkis's Alfred is a very reserved if not super underused alfred um I was but nevertheless say my, my biggest critique for the film is is andy circus's alfred as in um, there's not enough of him or yeah he's he might as well not be there i don't uh, there's and i was saying that there are there are open points where he could be more intricate to the plot in the sense that you know we clearly see that there's earpiece communication and such um I guess you could argue Circus is Alfred because he's only a year into the career is still not accepting of this Batman persona and is actually more traditionalist um, and is trying to hold on to uh, Bruce Wayne symbol as an out-in-the-open philanthropist striving for better rather than this vigilante because it's only a year into the career. Um, So he's not as accommodating. But, yeah, that definitely leads... And maybe in the second film... The sequel film there definitely will be um, more of him because after his experiences in this film he might feel it more necessary to be involved um but yeah in this film he is incredibly underutilized and you know doesn't really warrant the reconciliation scene i think um he gets at a certain okay. like at a low point in the film i think it's a little we just don't get enough time with them to really understand. Like that reconciliation scene really just doesn't carry as much weight as it could, perhaps. 
Um, mm. But it's a pretty fleeting scene. Like, they don't exactly try and milk it for every emotional gravitas and weight. Um, and I think that that's, that's sort of what I gathered from that. But you, you were saying that the, sure. the cast is, 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 is pretty great. I love Jeff Jeffrey Wright's uh, Commissioner Gordon. I think yeah, he's, he's brilliant. Gordon he really is. Um, it's so nice to see him in such an intricate plot role. Um, it would be lovely to explore that in the sequel film more. I mean, you, you just got to say it, though. Dano steals... Poor Dano steals the show, doesn't he? <laughs> Will we surprise... Yeah, I mean, the- the second I heard that Paul Dano was going to play the Riddler, I'm like, that is one of the best casting choices I've heard in in years. And I think he's great. I love how sort of little we actually see of him. Of course, and like the trailers inferred that of like, all right, we're not going to see his face until like literally the last twenty minutes of the film, um, mm-hmm. which I think is a great choice. And I think the whole twist that he has, I gem- I like that a lot. There's a lot of little twists and turns about what the Riddler's actually doing, what his goal is, um, what he thinks his relationship to Batman is. We find it's a bit of a twist. And mm-hmm. I, I liked a lot of that stuff. And even the way he causes influence, which is a perfect tie to... You know, I think this film might be a teeny tiny bit bloated in terms of its themes because you've got all the stuff with the vengeance and obviously that turns into hope by the end and everything with the mob sort of has its own family ties. And you know, are we making a difference in this world? But I think amongst all of that, I think the thing I took away from the most is influence. This idea that the Batman, or as we call him, Vengeance throughout the whole film, he has influence. And the Riddler, who is obviously the antagonist, also has his own level of influence. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I don't know if you're happy to jump into that aspect of it. Well, I think it's, it's yeah, like you're saying, it's, it's pain. I actually think this film has a lot of parallels to Nolan's Batman Begins. Um, mm. in terms of the character arc is almost um, identical in the sense it goes from it's that transformation from vengeance to symbolism or vengeance mm. to like it's the exact same arc Bale undergoes just in completely a different way obviously it's the male based on the like an overt origin story whereas this does a lot of really what I really love about this film is how it avoids just like oh he, he learns how to fight through Andy Circus that's what we're that's what it's implied like they're really leaning into Circus's mercenary like Alfred's mercenary background which they only mm. subtly allude in in um, Nolan's Batman like Alfred's long past that point of teaching him how to fight and um you know, it, it's but the arc I think is the exact, almost identical, and it's they use like themes like th- fear and vengeance, and um, like you said, influence. Which um, you know, obviously in in Nolan's Batman, that's used through things like that toxic gas that sees fear, and fear leads into anger and all that stuff. Whereas here, it's like I said, it comes back to that grounded realism. It's done through social media and, and preacherism, mm. um, which is a still an overt thematic um, present theme in life, you know, like how political movements or radicalised movements start with one person and sure enough, people will listen. And um, I, I think I love in a city of 12, 13 million people, the Riddler's followers is only like 500 people, but it's 500 people. And yeah. we really see the uh, gravitas of what an organised movement, even a very mi- what we would perceive as a very minuscule movement, can actually achieve. Um, but yeah, no, we can jump into it. 
the more yeah um, why well, I, I agree with you and it's like their drive through hate and vengeance and it it is i i did kind of not i didn't laugh in the theater but i i laughed at the thought of that moment when one of riddler's you know sort of henchmen or followers um is caught out and he responds like oh who are you i'm vengeance and i was like it's a bit of a you know save martha moment <laughs> just ever so slightly <laughs> but um but I mean, I never, I, I didn't mind the the safe Martha moment. I didn't mind it here either because it's a very clear idea of like, they both have different goals, but also mm-hmm. the same goals. Like for Batman, for Robert Pattinson, it's about you know vengeance and and you know I'm sad because my parents were killed and I'm I'm getting back at everyone. And what he realizes is that Riddler's doing the same thing, but just in a much more overt, violent way. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're both doing you know, their wires are getting a little crossed. And it's like, we're creating the same influence, which is violence and and vengeance and, and blood and gore. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that, this is what I'll say though, because I think you're right. That is clearly the arc that he goes on in terms of by the end of the film, they don't say the word hope. I'm pretty sure until the very end of the film. I don't think they use the word once uh, mm. until at the very end where he becomes like a symbol of hope and he's helping like the kid under the helicopter and, um, I love well, the, idea the point that where that's... he's literally shepherding them with a flare. Yeah, he's holding the light through the water, and there's some great visual moments in this film. I'll talk about some more of them in a moment. Some excellent visual storytelling from Matt Reeves, but I love the idea that that's where the arc goes. But that being said, I don't think there's actually a lot of beats between the start and the end of the film. Like there's that moment he has with Alfred, where he's a bit more human and he realizes he has things to lose. And then his realization at the end, when the guy says vengeance, and he realizes I need to save these people, that will, that's going to have a stronger effect on the city and make a difference. But in terms of like a, a complete character arc, I didn't feel like there were a lot of beats there. And I think the reason is, again, looking back at Zodiac and Seven and these Fincher-esque thrillers, you can even look at Memories of Murder if you want. Mm-hmm. The the characterization in all of those films are about detectives who cannot turn it off. The entire three-hour runtime, these detectives are always on. They're always thinking. They're always researching. They're obsessed with the, with that journey. And I've always found those films. This is a me thing, to be fair. This mm-hmm. is just a me thing. But I've always found it's harder for me to relate to those characters. I don't remember the characters' names in Seven, because I just remember like the interclip plot that they go about. But I don't remember their characters as well. It's like, oh, I know Brad Pitt has a wife, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know what happens to her, but. Because it's so dedicated to that genre, uh, that piece of storytelling, Bruce Wayne is barely in the film. He's in costume almost the entire time. There's not a lot of personality, which is fine. I didn't mind that. I think it's fine for him to be obsessed with solving this crime and making a difference in the city. But because of those things, I feel like there weren't a lot of beats in between each end of his character arc. Mm. I don't know if you agree with that or not. No, I think I think that's a very fair assessment because, um, there you could I I could see that point, and I think that comes back to maybe genre esque points that almost their arcs are conducted by the villain. Um, you know, you bring up sure. seven example, and and you know, Spacey's John Doe is is the one that drives the plot, drives the arcs. You know, like the what's in the box scene comes back to. The fact that it's like they've committed all of these acts throughout the film and this is just the summation of it and mm. um 
Uh, I think that that means Dano's Riddler really drives the plot, and so that vengeance line at the end is sort of that what's in a box moment where it's like Batman really sees that um, their ideologies are very similar, and I think that's what makes that scene when they're finally interacting in the cell so powerful when. And Dano chan- channels that there will be blood level energy. And I was so surprised <laughs> that Reeves didn't cast Dano out of that. Um, although wrote the character with him in mind, it was actually due to his 2014 film. Uh, I was just reading it, Love and Mercy. So Yeah, yeah, which I haven't seen um, yet. Which I found fascinating because I thought this was a straight pick from There Will Be Blood. Like, this was the preacher man with that, that tonality, like going from zero to a hundred moment, um, which he just does so well. Even like his reaction in um, uh, Little Miss Sunshine when he finds out he's colorblind, um, <laughs> where he just screams. Sure. And it's like he just has such a, like an uncomfortable level of emotion in his face. Um, and when he like, sort of when his world gets shattered um, and Batman and him, I've had them work, they, they don't share the same ideologies and, and Batman thinks he's crazy. Um, it's, it, it breaks him. And you're sort of like, wow, this is the, this is the real sickness. But his whole, uh, like, like discussion on, on how he was treated when he was an orphan and, and his yep. obsession with that hatred um, is, is truly a fantastic um classism commentary that they have which i really like um that even like um zoe kravis's catwoman like or selena carl yeah. like critiques that oh you must be from a rich background because you just wouldn't get it um mm. and it's definitely a, a, a an important theme which it, i mean it often has been a really important theme in batman films like classism so yeah, I think I think the difference that Batman has in this or Robert Pattinson's Batman is is sort of that empathy, that because yeah he's mm-hmm. accused many many times directly and indirectly. I mean both those characters say that to his face without realizing that's who they're saying it to. Mm-hmm. Um, although I have a bit of a not a theory but a question about the Riddler and really how well does he know Bruce Wayne is Batman? Because I'm I wasn't convinced that he didn't even by the end. I'll get to that in a minute, but. Okay. The empathy thing we see that when when Batman sees the, the you know the kid of the young mayor constantly and like he just lost a father and he empathizes with that and and we 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 don't need to see the origin story we've seen it a million times but we know exactly mm-hmm. where Bruce Wayne's head is at when he sees that you know that lost young boy and yeah. I think that's where the empathy comes from it doesn't matter if he's rich or white or any of those things he is fundamentally damaged from that and yeah he, he, a little bit of an emo. <laughs> Bit of a recluse, but um, <laughs> Robert Patterson brooding. I've never yeah. seen it oh. before. <laughs> yeah, um, is this a good time to talk about his performance? Yeah, I think mean, like, I mean, this performance really is. I think between this and Tenant, we've we've now seen the end of the the Patterson Renaissance, and we're back to seeing him now as a mainstream talent. Obviously, yeah, coming off you know being a much younger man when he did the Twilight films, I think. A lot of actors kind of get shoehorned into those at younger ages and then defined by it, by their careers and such. And obviously we've seen him then go away and do, you know, like Eggers Lighthouse and and things like, you know, um, 
the rover and and you know, we like talked about good time good time um yep. so i think when Noel, you know nolan took him on for tenant and then now we have reeves taking him on for this we've now seen him do a full circle in the last decade and i think he's great i think he's honestly like you know there's a real debate amongst at least like my friends that he matches bale's sort of portrayal um they're different but I think that there's a lot to like about Patterson's one performance in mm. this. Um, and I'm a, I'm a really big fan of it. It's it's definitely got sure. his good time nuances in it, for sure. Yeah. No, I definitely agree in the sense that I think as I was watching it, I felt like I wasn't really getting much of a sense of the performance because, again, there's very little Bruce Wayne in here. It's like 99% him in the costume doing that performance. I mean, that goes into the whole duality of, like, how much is he really Bruce Wayne versus Batman? That is a coping mechanism for him. Um, but the more that I reflect back on the performance, I'm like, yeah, I actually like it a lot. And I think if I were to directly compare it to some of the other Batmans, um, probably, yeah, you're right, the, the one we're most familiar with, I reckon, would be Christian Bale because we, we grew up with those films. Um, and I feel like Ben Affleck didn't really get any good films to perform in. <laughs> Um, even though I do like Ben Affleck. Um, yeah, I just, I think you're right. It's very nuanced and reserved. And I think I will say to this, I think he has the most interesting and tangential, um, presence, especially amongst like when he goes into crime scenes and he's, he's amongst all the other police officers and the, the vast majority of them don't like him. They want him to leave. They want him to get out of, he's touching all the evidence. Um, it's just him and Gordon that have that connection. Um, no, it might even different. literally just be his size. Like, he's probably the smallest Batman, but it mm. actually felt like the more tangential. Like, when I saw that scene, it I could it actually felt real. And to your point that this might be the most realistic interpretation of a Batman um, world, I would agree with you. In the, yeah, in the sense that that was the first time I believed it. And not everyone turning around and be like, oh, guys, it's Batman. Oh, my God. Everyone, everyone stop the scene. Take, yeah, yeah, like, like you know, even if you look back at Nolan's, like it's it's fanboy esque. Even in the first film, like they don't even they don't even reject his like you know. There's obviously like oh he's a vigilante, we've got to stop him. But most people that interact with him, or, or even things like you know when they see things like the like the fact that the Batmobile is essentially just a modified car in this, like it's yeah, not it's a, a challenger. It's not, I think yeah, yeah, it's not a it's not a tank. It's like <laughs> it's very much just this car. It's a car that's just had modifications to it to make it, you know, more aggressive, more. And, and I love that. And I love that he is met majoritively with rejection. Um, in you know, often Gordon's the only reason he's ever in a room. Um, and obviously that there's this like duality in the police force. And there's reasons that they're rejecting him because obviously some of them are corrupt and such, but yeah. Uh, overall, yeah, you get this feeling that you only really—I only think the either the video games I've played or um, the Telltale games I've played that have really encapsulated that level of kind of rejection that this character—and he should be met with rejection. Like, who is he? What? Why does he get to take the law into his hands? I mean, he technically mm. is a disturber of a democratic system or a, or a, you know a just government and. You know, obviously he's stepping into a world that's incredibly corrupt and, and stuff, and he's just taking matters into his own hands. But that level of apparatus, like particularly in the opening 
scene when we go to the original crime scene it, it gives that really perfect way of like oh well this isn't just his world he he's you know he's not actually supposed to in fact when the actual commissioner comes in um he gets kicked off it he's told to leave yeah in fact he only gets very limited time is where he can actually look at uh, victims and such because for the most part of the film he's not welcome on those scenes because he's not a policeman and he's not respected by uh, lawgivers and such. In fact, even in the last bit, when he has the final reveal before the bombs go off, um, what's his name, Martinez, the, he's sort of the kind of the, the everyday cop that we use to embody that whole group. Um, that's yeah. the only time he sort of is accommodating to him. And even then, he's like, you shouldn't be touching anything. Like, he, there's still that level of protection <laughs> there. Um, and I love that they have, like, a Martinez character in there, like that sort of, like, everyday cop that helps sort of like balance out Gordon's sort of like, well, why does, why does Gordon back him so much? They've only known each other for a year. He doesn't even know his name or his identity. Um, yep. yep. And um, so it's really good having that sort of, that very minor arc that Martinez, go, that Martinez goes on, but it's still really, really effective. Yeah, I definitely like the, um, the I guess, yeah, the representation <laughs> of the police yeah. force. And yeah, you have, you have that mistrust of, who's actually a rat, who's not. I feel like we're generally sort of on top of who's a rat and who's not. Yeah. Um, I mean, but the, but one the, thing about the that dynamic point, it causes, yes. Yeah. That, the one thing I have, like, and this plays into why I didn't give this like a perfect rating because there are critiques and they all actually do tie to circuses. Alfred, I was sort of like, well, that scene where we find out, you know, Dano's, uh, Riddler's first killing weapon was a a carpet uh, plucker. or something. They call it a certain thing, but it's used to pull up carpets and it was sort of like one of those things that, um, although he doesn't get the, the murder instrument till right at the end, it's like that would have been a perfect moment to have Alfred be like, oh, well, that's that's what that is, you know. Um, and sort of have that um, sort of command, con- like, you know, having that Alfred on the line, being able to solve it with him dynamic. And that might have mm, helped contribute okay. a little bit more to their arc, but... Um, at that point, obviously, you know, he was kind of out of commission. He was sitting in hospital. So maybe we'll see. <laughs> I honestly think we'll we'll be seeing a lot more of Alfred stuff in the second film, the sequel. I, so. I will give a little bit of credit to to an Alfred moment. It's pretty early on. The first time we meet him, and they're you know they're talking, and he's going over the day he just had Batman, and he says, "Oh, you know, such and such are here. You know, you're meant to meet with them today. Um, you know, they're here because you won't go over there. Like that exchange." Mm-hmm. Um, but then Alfred takes a look at you know some of the 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 Riddler sort of decipher that he has to go through, and then in the very next scene we see him, he's either doing it or have done it already, mm-hmm. and I kind of like that that wordless moment of just like, ah, oh, fine, I will still help you solve mm-hmm. this. <laughs> so I like yeah. that moment. They do have a good dynamic. I just wish we could have explored it more, but it's already three hours. Sure. And to be honest, this film is doing two things at once. It's it's doing um, a really good job of telling a cohesive narrative within the confines of the film, but it's also setting up characters very clearly for a sequel film. I mean, we're seeing not only Batman's rise to becoming a hero and a symbol for the city, we're actually seeing Penguin's rise to the top of sort of the mob, which, you know, that's going to be intricate to the next film. Um, He's getting his own show, I'm pretty sure. There you go. Farrell's, yeah. Farrell's fantastic. Like Oh, he's great. Scares the crap out of you that he looks like that, but 
it's up it's up there with a vice level transformation um but um he's like he's fantastic and yeah you know obviously it's setting that up and it's setting up like you know Kravis's Catwoman her journey and sort of we need to explore that a little bit more so there are a lot of moving pieces um and I don't think this will be the last time we see even Dano's Riddler sure yeah yeah well it's funny you mentioned that vice level transformation um because I had absolutely no idea about any of this until after I'd seen the film thankfully but mm. there was a mystery performance from Mr. Barry uh, Keegan, mm-hmm. who was always cast in this film as some random officer character, and then it became unknown Arkham patient. So there was a lot of mystery yeah. about who this who this person is, yeah. And then, surprise, surprise, the same makeup artist for uh, Colin Farrell is also doing is also doing Barry's makeup. And look at that, he's in the the last scene. Mm-hmm. As I guess what is meant to very clearly be the Joker. Now, so you I don't think know he's if the, I... you think he's the Joker? Yes, a thousand percent. Okay. I know some people thought he might have been Two Face. That was my. I don't think that, that makes. Was... Yeah. But I guess because he could quite easily be, but then he doesn't really have that duality in that performance there. Um. So you're probably more right with assuming it's going to be the next Joker. Or the Joker. I mean, because obviously, that's a pretty key point of Phillips's Joker is is Arthur is not a is not the Joker. Like he's just right, the inciting right. incident for, um, for the Joker sort of ideology. And obviously, you know, if we take the introductory scene to the Batman in this film, where you know there's that skeleton gang and i know it's halloween and they're they're dressed up but it, there's definitely that yeah. level of um sort of comic book-esque um sort of almost identical to the conclusion of, of the joker in that sense that we've got these people dressed up like clowns because they feel like clowns you know there's the whole riddler movement and the like the truth will you know so it's clear that these like ideological gangs are popping up around gotham so would would it be <laughs> yeah. far-fetched that there's a there's a joker gang i mean that has that has popped up yeah well the, the only reason i assumed it was the joker that there is lines about like oh do you know what's funny and they start laughing and mm-hmm. um and just like the the shape like the the vineyard of his face uh, which you don't, you don't see very clearly to be fair they could very easily be doing that where we're only seeing the half of his face is messed up um but I also feel like, and they've actually kind of come out and they've basically said, like, Two-Face will be, like, the next villain. They've basically confirmed that. Mm-hmm. I think it's, like, a leak for a website that people have looked up. and um, So I could be wrong. It could be Two-Face because he is pretty much confirmed for the next film. And they have the whole thing with mm-hmm. the DA. I mean, obviously, I think it's a Skarsgård that plays the DA that ends up blowing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that, that could be their Harvey Dent sort of introduction in the second film. Um, it's a but yeah, yeah, that's, look, a, that's I, a tough act to follow because I think what this film, why this film is liked by so many people, is because it has stayed away from trying to go one for one with with the Dark Knight, and it's tried to just be its own thing. So when you start integrating characters, and you you can't avoid characters like Two Face and and the Joker, but that's when it's going to be put up against the Dark Knight in a one for one comparison, which isn't necessarily fair, yeah. but. Um, especially making the second film about Two-Face and potentially the Joker, then you're almost going with the exact same villains of that film. So that's that's tricky. Yeah. 
No, I I agree. I wasn't. I I think I think Barry Keegan is actually not a bad choice to cast as a Joker, but I was also not excited at all with that you know little cameo. I just I'm like it didn't do it. I was like okay, we, how many bloody Jokers have we done already? And now there's rumors of Anya Taylor Joy is gonna play Harley Quinn. I'm like yeah, that's a great choice, sure. But I'm you're right. I'm glad that like I'm glad this film does the Riddler. Who's basically just the Zodiac killer? <laughs> and you know, I was looking at um, like, obviously at the you know time back to the IMDb tri- tri- um, trivia. Obviously, Affleck yep. had a script in mind and actually wanted to do Deathstroke with um, jo- mm. uh, Joe Mag- Magliano. I'm sorry, I always get his surname wrong, but he would have made a great Deathstroke. You know, he's a larger bloke, and it would be nice to explore these. I, you know, I think if we look back on like different villains, yeah, the last ten years, what has stuck out, like stuck out for us for the most part, not always, but um, is having these main characters go up against these overtly different. Like this is the first time the Riddler's ever been the key villain. Like I mean, I know Carrie just like in the um, uh, what's it called? I think it's Batman Schumacher's yeah Schumacher film. He's just a part of a collective cast, you know. I'd love us to to look into yeah. the to the poison ivies or the um, you know like the death strokes. These ones that we wouldn't expect to be very effective villains, but why not explore them? Like you could always end with the Joker. I don't mind if you eventually end up there, but to jump into the next film and do that, it's like, yeah, like why not try and explore something that we just don't see coming, like. And that it works sure, so well yeah. in this film. I mean, it really was. I, I love how little this film pushes action. Like it does it in the final piece, and it does it in the introduction, and we get one car chase in the middle—a very grounded car chase too, not in a, mm, a comic yep. book sense. It, it very much is just a high-speed chase. Um, but for the most part, there are no, there are very few action set pieces, and I like that. Because a true detective thriller should have, you know, a chase sequence in the middle and maybe like a, like the introduction to him. We know he has fighting abilities, so we're establishing it's not coming out of nowhere. And then that really, the introduction fight scene just shows he has fighting abilities for the last scene. That's all it is. Sure, really. yeah. But the, the, the real core of the film is trying to solve these riddles. So, um, and there's more investigative. And I love, I mean, so what are your thoughts on him sort of shotgun changing his suit in and out. Like, he almost is, like, has to carry, like, that suit doesn't carry its weight yet in terms of fear for everyone. So he has to, like, literally go into places as a civilian. Well, you're talking about Batman. Yeah. Well, I feel like the opening scene, that's exactly what it's portraying, is that that, that level of fear has been established, and you see these, mm. you know, bank robbers and these thugs. They, you know, they're doing what they're doing, but then they come out and they see the spotlight in the sky, and they're they're literally tripping over themselves. They're scared of nothing, True. but they're petty you know, criminals. There, and I, they're, they're, they're petty criminals. Well, sure, but I think that I'm, I'm I think that's the the point though is like for the vast majority of these of these sort of scumbag thugs, they are scared of that symbol, and that his fear, his inflicting of fear, is working. The mm-hmm. problem is that. It's not working, as in it's not making an actual change, mm-hmm. and that the city is still. He has his, you know, very, um, what's it called? A very, very moody monologue at the start. Is it playing in the Varnason under it? Which, yeah, I was, I was fine with. I'm like, it's a little, little on the nose, maybe, but um, they're trying to establish that tone. I do get that. Yeah. 
But I, I thought the first scene was absolutely wonderful for that reason. And the fact that a lot of those shots and like the inside the train and looking through windows, the windows, are, the windows are sorry, very muddy and, and sort of wet and fogged up. And you can actually barely see beyond that point of view. You can barely see into the darkness. And even, you know, one of my friends, he made a joke being like, oh, I will tell you what I thought of the Batmobile, but I, I couldn't actually see what it looked like. And I think all of those things, as well as like Batman's methodical movement, he's very slow. He walks very slowly. He takes his time to do things. Um, I think that's all in service of him being that fearful, scary presence. So I think he does do a really good job of that from the beginning. The 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 arc is that he needs to be more of a symbol of hope. Sure. Uh, and he needs to steer a little away from that. That that I don't know. That's what I think of okay. the opening. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to add before we jump into highlight scenes? Yeah, so I'll talk a little about the thing I teased with the Riddler. So the, so it ends up being a bit of a twist in the moment when the Riddler's talking about Bruce Wayne being sort of the only target he actually couldn't get. The explosion failed. And he goes on and on and on talking about him in such a direct manner mm-hmm. that when it flips, you're like, oh, he actually doesn't realize the Batman's Bruce Wayne. That's a bit of a twist moment. But I was kind of confused by that because, yes, the twist is that he thought Batman was one of his followers and that they were essentially working together to take down, you know, these figures, mm-hmm. which I think is a great twist. I think that's cool. And then you're right. He has the outburst when Robert Patterson's like, actually, you're crazy. I'm not following you. Are you, are you kidding me? But the reason I think it's weird that he didn't know Bruce Wayne was Batman is... The bomb that was sent to Bruce Wayne's like mansion that Alfred, of course, opens was so anticlimactic compared to all the other murders that I was like, there's gotta be a reason that Yeah, you, know, you look at um you look at Colson, he's all strapped up with the phone bomb, he has to answer the riddles or he explodes. Um you have like the rat test, the gut the you know, the the face and the rats coming through the tubes. It's mm-hmm. also theatrical. True. But then for Bruce Wayne, he's like, oh, he's just a bomb. So my... In my... In my mm, yeah. I was going to say, my, my no, counter to this, actually, I actually think it comes through with Falcone's murder, with the whole bring you to the light and I'll do the rest. And he almost yep. emphasizes it in that exact scene where he's like, I couldn't get to Tudoro. I mean, because you would argue that's an anticlimactic death. Basically, all he's inherently going is, I'm a sniper sure. in a tower and I need you to bring him out so I can shoot him. Um, and it, it, it's sort of like the same sort of thing. It's that inaccessibility. The only way he could physically have a shot at, at killing Bruce was because Bruce has been overtly um, uh, introverted. In fact, it's well known he's near, nigh unaccept, like inaccessible um, to the point where sure. you have to come see yeah. him and the new mayor-elect can't get near him unless it's at a funeral. So the only way he could get to... Bruce was to literally bomb him in his office. Um, um, <laughs> the way you said that just was funny to me. Yeah, like <laughs> just bomb it's, him. <laughs> it's the only. It actually is the only way he could get to him because there was no way that mm. they were going to get to the top of Wayne Tower because he always talks about that ivory tower defense and how it's you know it must be so hard for an orphan with all this money. Okay, um, and I think the reclusive nature is the only reason. Why it comes back to that, like I said, that grounded realism. The fact that he did all these intricate things to these other ones was because he was able to access them, because he knew how to access them. Um, he knew where they went, how to get them, how to like seduce them. But he didn't know that much about Bruce. 
only that mm. he was connected, okay. his family was connected to the mob. So, um, and that's why Bruce... That's a good point. I, I, Yeah, I think you're right. Bruce is only suffering because of what his parents did, his, le- his family legacy. Um, okay. That's a good point. Like, you're right. We, we've seen it time and time again. This is the most reclusive Bruce Wayne we've ever seen. He rarely leaves the house. So, I, I, I think that's a good point. Like, how else was he going to make a big show and tell yeah. of that? And I'm pretty sure it says to the Batman on the envelope that Alfred reads. So, I guess the idea is, yes, Batman would show up to Bruce Wayne's mansion, mm-hmm. and that would be televised in some... So, fair enough. I I, I will give you that one. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, what was, what was the other thing I was... No, I can't remember. <laughs> no worries. We'll check you. That's a good point. I'll see. To too. move into your highlight scene. Sure. So I reckon, in in theme with the the, the Fincher s sort of crime thriller, like really dark aspects of that story. I think my favorite scene has to be the extended interrogation at the church, and for, specifically for me, it was that that scene where the car drives through the funeral and and he comes out with the bomb, which is just a cool like dark image. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen that clip before. They released that clip online, but it, it ends there. And I got really excited when it cut to the exterior and it's a nighttime and all the cops are still there. And I was like, oh, yes, like this scene's still going. Like, hell yeah. And we, we had the whole thing play out where it's between Batman, Coulson and Riddler and he has to answer the questions through the phone, the riddles. Um, I, I just thought that whole scene was super dark and just super great. Um, that's like, that, that is purely my favorite scene from the movie. That's the most of what I wanted out of this Batman film. Cool. I'd have to say it has to be the introduction to Dano after he's unmasked because they have the theological conversation about identity and how they both are only able to be their true selves with masks on. There's definitely a perfect balance of that notion that your villain is... Like, your hero is only as good as your villain. And they really found a way to make the Riddler's kind of comical by nature character... Very grounded in realism, very believable, and you know, incentivized for what he's doing, albeit radical, but definitely almost a perfect reflection. And what makes me worried about that is if they're talking about bringing the Joker in, is how they're going to get that duality out a second time um, with, sure. with the Joker. But because I guess you could argue all of Batman villains, why they're so effective, is a lot of them do have a duality nature. Or his best villains are the ones that have parts that mirror his identity and his ideological values, just mm. go about it differently. But, you know, if you take Nolan's films, the only one that really hits the nail on the head is Heath Ledger's Joker. I guess you could argue um, Liam Neeson's Ra's al Ghul does the same thing um, in the first film. But, you know, it's obviously it's going to be interesting to see where this goes next for Reeves. Hopefully it's Reeves too, and there's not a contractual problem that leads to him not getting a second film. Yeah, I think it is. I'll just double check because I think he, okay, he co-wrote it with Peter Craig, but it sounded like he was very intricately involved with the writing of the film, not just the directing. And my guess is he's a thousand percent going to direct the whole trilogy. For that, sure, that's my understanding. Fingers crossed. Um, yeah, and I think you're right. I I think the direction is excellent in this film. So yeah, I'd love to see him go again. Cool. Well, the Batman out in cinemas right now. I you saw did. your lines, Zeke. <laughs> he did. I love it. <laughs> Speaking of uh, cinemas, Jake, what's out in cinemas and streaming platforms this week? 
yeah, a bit of a, a lighter week, which, I mean, hey, that's great. Because some of us have to stay on our homes, so, you know. <laughs> it's what it is. You have The Adam Project coming to Netflix this week. It is a sci-fi drama in which sees Ryan Reynolds play a time-traveling fighter pilot who must work with his 12-year-old self to save the future. I saw a couple of screen grabs of this, and I was like, is this a comedy? Apparently it's not a comedy, but... Uh, yeah, that's weird. Know. Sounds like a comedy. <laughs> it does. Like, why? Why does he have to work with his child self? Like, what does his child self know that he doesn't? I don't know. We'll see. I'm. I'm probably definitely not going to watch it. <laughs> I just don't care. Um, coming to stand this week is Rosemary's Baby. I believe the original. That's my guess. So check it out. It's awesome. You have Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley come to Disney Plus. We're going to talk about more about him in just a minute. In fact, we also got the latest Disney Pixar film, Turning Red. Which, um, I, this is like the fourth Pixar film now that's gone straight to streaming, which mm. it's a bit of a shame, I feel like. Yeah, I haven't even seen the last yeah. couple. Yeah, well, we did, we did Onward, did we do, no, we did Onward and Soul. We but, haven't done um, Encanto. Oh, but Encanto. Encanto's not Pixar, to yeah. be fair. Yeah. I think that's just Disney, but, um, I watched Luca and I was not a fan. I didn't like, I didn't like Luca at all, actually. Um, and I don't, we'll see turning red. We'll see. It's getting good reviews, but also so have the last few Pixar films. And I didn't like, I thought soul was good. Not great. I didn't think onward was amazing. I didn't think much of Luca at all. I just, I haven't been on a jive with Pixar lately. So I, I just, I don't care. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we also have the premiere episode of how I met your father. There you so, go. Zeke, have you been, have you been watching this at all? No, no, a couple of friends of the show have, and they're not the biggest fan of it. So, I don't have high hopes uh, at all for it. Right. Uh, that's a shame. Well, if you're keen, you can watch the first episode on Disney Plus later this week. We also have Hotel Transylvania 2 and 3, so that ties into my Nosferatu conversation earlier. That comes to binge, as well as What Lies Below, uh, Shazam, and the Brian Cranston film Wakefield, which I think is a perfectly fine film. And coming to... Oh, look at that. Paramount Plus. There's <laughs> actually something in Paramount Plus this week. Uh, American Refugee, which sees a family seek shelter in their neighbor's bunker after an economical collapse and the nation's now ruled under martial law. However, the danger in, inside the bunker is potentially greater. Ooh, a bit of a 10 Cloverfield Lane thing going on there. Sounds like what's happening in my house right now. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and finally, coming to cinemas, we have The Book of Love, which sees sparks fly between an uptight English writer and a Spanish translator who has rewritten his failed book into an erotic novel. Mm. Sounds spicy. Very spicy. Very spicy. Off the Rails sees three best friends from college recreate their post-graduation trip across Europe to honour the memory of their friend Anna, who has since passed away, and to fulfil her dying wish by taking their 18-year-old daughter with them. So that seems that seems sweet. Mm. Seems really nice. Um, I mentioned it earlier, or last week, The Souvenir Part 2 is now getting a proper release at Luna, so you can watch that from uh, Thursday the 10th, whenever you want. Um, I obviously did not catch The Souvenir 1 or 2 in this past week, because I was locked away. I'm just going to keep mentioning that. <laughs> and finally, the WA Made Film Festival starts this week. Although I don't know why I'm mentioning it because most of the sessions have already sold out. Which, hey, that's excellent. 
That's yeah, great that they're selling that. Yeah. So screenings of films like How to Please a Woman and Good for Nothing Blues. I think we both have friends who worked on those films in some capacity. They're all sold out. Unfortunately, we have to wait a little longer for those. However, there are extra tickets to films like Edward and Isabella, which is a Halo Films drop. You've also got a documentary showcase. There's still some tickets there left. And Girl Like You has a few tickets left. Uh, so that all starts this week. Get excited. I actually don't know where. I guess Palace. I guess it would be Palace is where they do a lot of that. Mm, no worries. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show. We are actually moving into another director's corner. But Jake, <laughs> who is the director and what are we watching? Well, we just mentioned his name a moment ago, didn't we? We're talking about Guillermo del Toro and his 2006 film, Pan's Labyrinth. In a dark time, when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. There will be signs that mark her return. There will be secrets that reveal her destiny. There will be a journey bookish young stepdaughter of the sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie yet captivating fantasy world. Neither of us have seen this, have we? I have not. No. No, I have not seen it. No. Very exciting. I, I, yeah, yeah, I'm excited as well. And, And I was saying to you before we started recording that this feels like a real classic sort of eerie horror film, but it came out in 2006. Like, for some reason in my brain, it came out like decades ago. But I don't know. There you go. It's got it's got its staying power, I guess. There we go. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zig. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Pan's Lab.